0: 25 years ago, it was harder to find a community of crazy, because if you were the kind of odd person in the neighborhood, when you hung out with other people on your street or whatever, have you, they weren't going to validate the crazy. It was harder to find strange ideas. Now we can validate just about anything on the internet. It's and then it's like a two part
1: process, right? The first part is you become addicted to being a contrarian. And then the second part is you find the internet. And the first part is dangerous, and then the second part ruins your brain. Welcome to, or welcome back to the Growth Equation Podcast. We're your hosts. I'm Brad Stahlberg, joined, as always, by my partner in crime, Steve
0: Magnus. Steve, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Brad. Thanks for asking. I'm excited to record another podcast. I think we've got a great, interesting conversation. I had my run-in today. I had a coffee because I had to write a lot. So I'm raring and ready to go.
1: All right. Well, we get caffeinated Steve, so um, y'all are in for a treat. I'm doing well today, too. And part of that is I noticed that both of our recent books... The practice of groundedness in do hard things hit a thousand reviews on Amazon this morning, and um, the vast majority of those reviews are five stars. Both books come in at basically what amounts to a five star average. So it's a very arbitrary number, and yet in the world of book publishing, they there's a thought that the one thousand mark is is kind of special. So the fact that we're both there for both these books in under two years. Um, it's a good sign and thank you to listeners and readers for those that have enjoyed the book and reviewed it. People really read those. It does matter. We appreciate it. And if you haven't yet read or listened to our work, now's a good time. We are 100% independent on this podcast. That simply means that we don't take sponsorship or advertisement. We do that because we want to feel like we can say whatever it is that we want to say. So the main thing that supports our work is really our book sales. So if you like our podcast and you want to go deep on the topics that we discuss here, we highly recommend our most recent books, The Practice of Groundedness by Brad Stahlberg, Do Hard Things by Steve Magnus. They're available wherever books are sold in whatever format you can imagine. Hard copy, audio, ebook, you name it. So check out our books. And um, with that,
0: let's get to today's show. All right. Let's talk about it. So today... We're going to kind of go into, I'll call, it all ends in diet. And we're going to kind of talk about guru syndrome, losing your mind on the internet, you know, falling in love with contrarianism. And I think this is a really kind of important societal topic because, you know, 20 years ago, this thing didn't exist as much because there wasn't an outlet for kind of, uh, you know, directly getting validation from others and getting pushed towards this extremism. Um, it was more kind of a, a niche on things. So to start this off, Brad, a couple weeks ago, you tweeted something, and we're going to start there. All right. So a few weeks ago, I saw
1: that Jordan B. Peterson, the famous or infamous, depends on who you ask, psychologist, tweeted that Obesity is an illness caused by a carb-rich diet. And um, here's why that matters. For those that aren't familiar, Jordan Peterson became wildly popular after his book, 10 Rules for Life. And um, the book is a very good book, to be quite frank. It is just nail these basic things and become a mature adult in the world. And he went from a rather obscure Jungian psychoanalyst to someone that was very quickly quite popular on the internet. And with that popularity, Jordan Peterson started to expand his very strong takes to issues such as gender identity, politics, public health and vaccination, and most recently, nutrition. Now, A couple things. The first is his actual tweet that obesity is an illness caused by a carb-rich diet is laughably falsifiable. The leanest athletes in the world are Kenyan marathoners. And Steve, you would know better than me, but my recollection is about 70 to 80% of their calories come from carbohydrates. So if a carb-rich diet caused obesity... These people who are running like 4% body fat would all be obese because basically all they eat is carbohydrates with a sprinkle of protein. So, from a serious person scientific fact, we know that it's not true. We also know that if you look at the Asian continent, rates of obesity there are behind here in the West. And the staple of diets in Asia tends to be simple carbohydrates, rice. So again, if rice and carbohydrates were causing obesity, we would expect to see that Asia would have much higher rates of obesity than here in the States. And we'll spend just like a minute talking about nutrition because I think it's both really complex and complicated and really simple, and we can do it in a minute. But we're not here to talk about nutrition. What we're here to talk about is how does someone like Jordan Peterson go from obscure to writing a good book that kind of blasted him out of the stratosphere and popularity to suddenly becoming this super provocative figure. But I know some people want this and I promised it. So I'm going to do this real quick. Here is Stephen and I's simple take on nutrition. And there's all kinds of complexity beneath it. It's also kind of simple though. So what's driving obesity most likely isn't any single nutrient. It's two things. Number one, it's increasingly sedentary lifestyles. So we spend a lot more time not moving than we do moving. And number two, and arguably the larger driver, is an abundance of highly processed foods. Sometimes these foods are carbohydrate heavy. Sometimes these foods are fat heavy. But it is not carbohydrates or fat that are causing obesity. It is Pringles and Skittles and added fat and added sugar and added sodium to just about everything that most people eat. And that is what's causing obesity. It's not a single nutrient. Now, I said there's a lot of complexity. Certain people feel much better eating a high-fat diet. Certain people feel much better eating a high-carb diet. We're not here to talk about nutrition. We're here to say that what Jordan Peterson said is laughably falsifiable, and how come all of these gurus always end up at nutrition?
0: Absolutely. And I just want to add one on addition that I think is important in that, you know, Kenyan runner study that you mentioned, it should be mentioned that 20% of their diet was pure sugar <laughs> because they dump sugar into their tea. Um, so the point of that is to get at the complexity of this, right? It's like you have these these Kenyan athletes eating a ton of carbohydrate and a ton of sugar, but they're also training a ton. So in some ways, like that pure that sugar, in terms of you know replacing the carbs that's used for fuel, is kind of their best friend. Now that wouldn't be the case for Joe sitting on the couch in America, but that's the complexity and the nuance we're trying to get at, and that's why simple takes of you know carbs are the cause of obesity um, are going down a, a poor rabbit hole. Um, I want to give one more example to make sure it's not that we're picking on Jordan Peterson and and using him as kind of like this overarching, uh, you know, symbol is actually someone who who likes and occasionally retweets some of our stuff. And that's Tim Noakes And, and similar to Peterson, like Tim Noakes work is really, like, was really good. Like, it formulated as me, a young sports scientist, getting my degree, my bachelor's and master's. Like, Tim Noakes was someone's research I read and looked up to. We wrote about his work on the central governor model of fatigue in our first book together, Peak Performance. Like, it is good, solid work. It was also a little bit contrarian in the time he was doing it, to give the 30-second summary, you know, basically, and I'm overstating stuff, but in the 90s and 2000s, we kind of had like a, I'll call it a a model of fatigue that kind of left the brain out to a degree. And Noakes comes in and says, hey, the brain is important. Like, our perception, um, you know, all of that stuff really matters. Like, let's pay attention to it. And... his, his kind of model and theory was largely on the right direction of what we kind of see now. But similar to Peterson, what Noakes has kind of done is gone down this rabbit hole that first included diet and similarly like carbohydrates, sugars, etc. being the cause of you know bad things, bad health everywhere. And then expanded into vaccines and other kind of conspiracies. And what I think what we're trying to understand here is how you go from like doing some good solid work that might be a little contrarian to ending up, (laughs) as it seems most do, in like this diet plus conspiracy elsewhere, um, which seems to be the path of what we'll call kind of gurus. On the internet, so let's break this
1: down into two things because I think they're both interesting. The first, and I think, is the easier analysis, is the um, general serial contrarianism. The harder analysis is why does it always end at diet? Like of all the things that you know the slippery slope could lead down to, without fail, it stops at diet or it ends at diet. So let's tackle the more easy thing first. I think. The explanation behind this becoming addicted to being a contrarian relies on a couple of things. The first is that if you did something at the time that a lot of people said wasn't going to work and gave you crap about and said, no, like this isn't the way to do it, no one's going to read a simple book on like say please and thank you, Jordan Peterson, Tim Noakes. No one's going to believe that fatigue is actually generates in the brain, not the muscles. Don't do it. Elon Musk, there's no way you're going to develop an electric car. There's no way you're going to lap NASA in going to space. And then you prove those people wrong. Well, of course, you're going to think that the general society or conventional wisdom is wrong. And you're right, because you have this visceral lived experience of doing that. However, just because you're a contrarian and right on one thing doesn't mean that you're going to be a contrarian and right on all things. So that's the first. And then the second is I think that there's a real thrill to being a contrarian. Um, it's basically playing the lottery and everyone is, uh, is betting on one ticket and you're the only person that bets on the other ticket and then the other ticket wins. I mean, those are some pretty intense feelings of excitement and, um, and, and even mania that can come with that. So I think you combine those two things of having a past visceral experience of being right on something that is unconventional, along with all the feelings that come with it, and now you supercharge that with the internet. And I think it's very easy to see why, if you are contrarian on one thing, it is quick to be contrarian on everything.
0: I think you're spot on. I mean, the only things I'd add there is, if you think of it as the brain works in a predictive fashion... If all of a sudden you're just getting reinforced on like, oh, I'm correct when I go against the grain. Oh, I know more. better I know better than the quote unquote experts on X, Y, and Z. I proved it. Your kind of predictive model like shifts to like I know more and my perception of you know. Going against the grain is is likely correct. So it it's almost like you you overcorrect on your competence in areas, and then on that that other part, I think it really is kind of like a, an addic- addiction. Like you get that high, whether it's from dopamine or other neurochemicals, where you go against the grain, you get proven right. There's a little of like, ha-ha, like look what I made you guys, you know, I made you guys look like fools. I'm correct. And I think the key part of this where it comes to storm is the internet provides a place where it amplifies that feeling or that addictive nature. Because it provides a community, often a small community, but a community that almost amplifies those feelings. And both the good and bad, it amplifies the feelings of like, Usness on like, look, it was me against the world, and we were correct, right? And it amplifies some negative feelings, which you know uh, push us towards doubling down our in that area, like outrage, anger, you know, etc. And if you listen or you you go on, I would suggest any listeners, you know, pause on this podcast, come back to it, but pause, go look at the Twitter feed of both, and the similarity between Noakes and Peterson is, A, they tweet all the freaking time. Or Elon Musk, too, by the way. I'm yes. going to add him in. And Musk. Like, they tweet all the freaking time, which tells you what? Like, they're kind of addicted to that feeling of, like, getting something out, out there in the world, getting that validation, getting that anger. And often, they tweet all of them on very divisive, like, internet-heavy topics. Like controversy is king us versus them create anger stoke outrage and like what does that do But gives you that cacophony of neurochemicals and feelings which probably temporarily fills that void for sure and it's and then it's like a two-part
1: process right the first part is you become addicted to being a contrarian and then the second part is you find the internet And the first part is dangerous, and then the second part ruins your brain. And I really do believe that the internet ruins your brain, and I don't mean just to pick on them. The times when I spend significantly more time on the internet than I'm used to, I don't think as well. I'm not as patient. I don't have creative ideas. I don't think my own thoughts. Um, It's just not good for my brain. It's a huge occupational hazard for you and I, Steve, is that when we launch a book, we spend a ton of time on the internet, and I think it's the number one thing that we have to be aware of to protect our like our goods that, that allow us to do what we do, which in our case is our ability to think. Um, so I think that, yeah, it starts with it starts with being a contrarian, getting addicted to it. And then if you fall into that Internet thing, you're just constantly chasing the next the next high of, um, of validation and, and divisiveness and being provocative. And I think it ruins your brain.
0: Yeah, I agree 100%. I think the internet provides, A, an easy source of that, and B, a community that kind of reinforces and validates that. So it's easy to kind of deceive yourself and for you to think like, oh, the more people, the rest of the world believes this because this is what the validation I'm kind of getting back to me. I have a, I think I wrote this in a piece for the Growth Equation newsletter a while ago, but You know, essentially, I said, you know, 25 years ago, it was harder to find a community of crazy. Because if you were the kind of odd person in the neighborhood, you know, when you hung out with other people on your street or whatever, have you, they weren't going to validate the crazy. It was harder to find strange ideas. Now we can validate just about anything on the Internet. And I think that has led to some messy uh, situations.
1: All right, so then the more interesting analysis is how come these people always end up at diet, and to an extent, Elon Musk too. Like his, he 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 has these nutrition tweets about like his intermittent fasting or ketogenic this or that, um, and it's just fascinating that everybody ends up at diet. So I'm going to throw out a couple of loose ideas, and I'm not too convinced that any of them are are the answer here. I think number one is that nutrition science is kind of a mess. Our good friend Derek Thompson recently had a podcast on Plain English about a study that showed that people that eat ice cream have all these longevity benefits. And like they tried to disprove this over and over and over again, and they couldn't. And the answer isn't that we should eat more ice cream. The answer is that it's really hard to do meaningful nutrition science. So there's a lot of ambiguity and openness there. And then I think the other thing is that nutrition and what you put into your body is like very personal and intimate. And if you have this thing that people are doing every day, that's a big part of their life, it has to be, you have no choice but to eat that feels very personal and intimate. It's a great way to build tribes. And again, if what's driving the feedback of having a contrarian idea and getting a million likes and feeling on top of the world is attention well the best way to get someone's attention is to find a tribe and give them what they want to hear
0: i think you're right i think there's a natural inbuilt kind of identity divide on nutrition that makes it a place where people want to go and stake their claim because you know even without these guys or anybody there's there's distinctions right if you eat a certain way like you get labeled into a certain tribe so that pulls them towards that. I think the other part of it is, you know, if you think about it, the two topics you're told not to talk about, you know, to create, you know, some divide maybe when you're, you're sharing family Thanksgiving or Christmas or what? Religion and diet. And I think there's a reason for that. They go together. And diet engenders this kind of religious, like, zeal and what the, and that religious like zeal does two things is it creates an us versus them and then it creates some sort of like that internal feelings of like both anger and outrage but also like superiority and I'm correct and like you don't know what you're talking about and it it kind of creeps it almost like fills that void so I think it's a natural kind of endpoint for where do people, you know, go to fill that void? Well, I'm going to use the drug addiction analogy again. You have to kind of search and search for more and new places to fill it, which is why I think people go down deeper and deeper rabbit holes of, like, extremism on divisive topics. And one of the places that is, like, natural to do that and, like, you know, gives you a nice hit is diet. (laughs) And there's a lot of variability
1: in personal experience, so you're always going to find an audience. So like, let's dig a little bit deeper here on nutrition, even though we said that we wouldn't. First rule in principle that gets you 95% of the way there is to avoid these highly processed foods. Even if you do a really good job of that, some people, based on their own biochemistry, are going to feel great and do their best eating a very high-carbohydrate diet. Other people are going to feel like crap and not do well eating a very high-carbohydrate diet. And that individual variability lends people to think like, oh, I finally found the way, when in fact, no, what you found is the way that works for your body and your activity level at a given point in time. So I've experimented, and if I have really any more than like 10% of my calories coming from fat... I put on body fat, so not muscle. I put on weight and I feel sluggish and I don't feel good. Whereas if I just freaking eat pancakes and protein and tons of carbohydrates, I feel great and I stay really lean. That's very counter to a good friend of mine who has to basically eat the complete opposite way and does pretty well on what looks similar to a ketogenic diet. Now, neither of us are eating fast food, We're not having like potato chips as a staple of our diet. So we're avoiding the highly processed foods. But even after you do that, there's these distinct experiences. And I can see why someone like me would be like, all these keto people are nuts. What are you talking about? And I can see why someone like my friend would be like, what do you mean eat carbs? Whenever I eat carbs, I feel like crap. So I think that rather than say there's a lot of individual variability and there's some base rules, it gets really easy to be like, I found the answer because it worked for me and then apply that more broadly. And maybe that relates to contrarianism just a little bit, because I think a part of contrarianism is saying, like, just because I'm good at this one thing and could see counterintuitively on this one thing, therefore I, I must my skill must be seen counterintuitively on everything. When actually it's not. I mean, we talked about this a lot when Elon Musk first acquired Twitter. Like there is a difference between hardware engineering and running a social media platform. And maybe Elon Musk would have been contrarian on nine other hardware engineering problems, but his skill set's not being a
0: contrarian. His skill set was being good on hardware engineering problems. Well, and I'd I'd argue you see that with the other two we mentioned as well within their their niche of actual expertise, like their contrarianism like pays off. Tim Noakes in exercise science you know, um, Peterson in young and psychology and identity stuff around that. And I think the mistake occurs when we jump from like specific skill to general ability. And that's why if we tie it all to diet, it makes sense, right? Because it feels like what works for you should apply to everybody else. I would also say that there's an um, element of like, sense of control in there, right? Where diet is something where we feel like we have control over in terms of, you know, A, we get to choose the the food that goes into our mouth and all that stuff. So feeling like you have found the answer and want to spread it, like, goes straight into that 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 contrarianism that we talked about, which is like, hey, look at me, I found the answer on fatigue or whatever, well-being, or to make electric cars work and feasible, let's spread it. So I, th- I think it's all this interesting kind of mixture that, that combines to give us, you know, again, the most potential to lose our minds on the internet. And I think the other thing that I'd say here is that you know, I know we're we're highlighting three individuals, but what it speaks to is also is our biggest strengths often become can become our, our downfalls. Like for instance, instance, Tim Noakes was a noted contrarianism in exercise science, which gave him a, a huge strength of seeing things differently. Not only in terms of fatigue, but also he was key on you know uh, essentially the the uh, hydration you know drinking too much can lead to hyponatremia so overhydration he was big on that which turned out to be correct um but anyways what it shows is that like when we go down a path where it's like we mistake our specific realm for our general you know and our strength can our strength then becomes our weakness like that belief on you know, I see things differently, then becomes our greatest downfall, because we don't realize that, hey, we're seeing things differently, but that differently is probably hurtful and wrong.
1: Yeah, I think that that is, um, that's very much spot on. And, um, and then you get, you also get the, the echo chamber of the internet being not only that you're right, but then all these people from the opposite extreme come in to tell you that, like, you're wrong. And my guess is Jordan Peterson got really stoked. I doubt he saw anything I tweeted, but if you would have seen my tweet, he would have gotten stoked. And what I probably should have done is just let it fly into the abyss untouched, but I'm not perfect. Um, because like that, that, that kind of validates like, Ooh, this is, um, this is divisive. And then I think the only other thing to point out is there is so much conflicting information out there. And, it is really hard to hold these two ideas at the same time. That experts have been wrong about pretty important things in the past, and that the way science progresses is that experts are proven wrong over and over and over again over time. While at the same time realizing that at any given point in time, The expert consensus is 99.999% the right consensus. So those are the two things to hold in your mind, that experts have effed up in big ways in the past. And there is some elitism in institution, and there are expert echo chambers, and science could be made better, and all of that is true. And it is by far the best tool that we have for decision making, even though it's imperfect. And I think people really struggle to acknowledge that. I think it's like, takes a lot of maturity or the flip side is it's really immature to be like, oh, well, they messed up this. So therefore I'm not going to trust them on anything and they must be wrong on everything. Um, When in fact, like the way that progress works is that the way that we were doing something gets proven wrong. But again, at any given point in time, like the way we're doing something is generally the best. And I think the, the most clear and extreme example that I can come up with is chemotherapy. So my, my strong suspicion is that a hundred years from now, my hope is that we'll look back and we'll say that chemotherapy was like, is medieval is like bloodletting because we'll have developed technologies through, um, genetics. And hopefully this is an area where artificial intelligence can really help or immune system, drugs that can treat cancer without using these chemicals that like are otherwise used in war to kill people however right now if you have cancer you want a good oncologist with the best chemotherapy cocktail available and this is an area where like we kind of know that like there's like we got to be wrong there's got to be a better way but because we're not there yet it's the best way Um, So that doesn't mean that you don't use chemotherapy. Of course you use it. It's the best we have right now. And and that's how I like to think of expert consensus in general.
0: I think that's a great idea. And the one, uh, or a great example, the one thing I'd add there is that generally, if you look at when experts are wrong and they're corrected, not always, but generally it all, it, it comes from within working within the system. So Tim Noakes is a great example. His exercise theory that kind of rearranged fatigue didn't come from blasting out tweets. It came from doing good work in research to show why this is probably the way. And I think in general, that's where you see course correction is, yes, it's contrary to maybe the consensus in the field at the time, but that course correction comes from doing good work in scientific, good scientific work in that field to say, hey, this is why, this is how I'm showing you we're on a wrong path. And I think yeah, that- I think
1: another good recent example of that is um, with the COVID pandemic in Zeynep Tefechki. Although she spends a lot of time on the internet too, and I really worry about her brain. So hopefully she's got a good plan in place. But um, she was really contrarian from the get-go on masks, saying that, hey, COVID is actually an airborne disease, and we have more than enough evidence to suggest that it's an airborne disease, so why aren't we telling everybody to mask? This is like way in the beginning of the pandemic when it was, you know, you should only mask if you're um, if you're in a hospital. And then I remember... Um, she just had to press really hard on all the big organizations and she got really upset and rightfully pissed off about how slow they were to move. But she's not anti-vax. If anything, she's the opposite. She's an ardent proponent of vaccines because like she realizes that just because the institutions messed up this one thing doesn't mean that they're messing up all of it and they might actually be getting the other 10 things right. Um, But she did that from within science. Like she's an academic, she's a scientist And it wasn't a gotcha; it was based on a whole lot of research,
0: exactly. And I think that's where you tend to see these kind of positive shifts from norms to maybe that contrarian view. Is it occurs because there's better data, better experience, etc. Gone through the traditional route. I think when we have to watch out is when people demonize traditional, you know, the traditional path. Without doing the work The actual work to show like Why it's wrong within that path Because like we've accepted Again, as you pointed out like Science isn't perfect But it's the best thing we've invented so far To get us mostly on the right track Over the long haul
1: As an aside um, With the Zainip stuff She made this one argument That I remember when I read this early on in the pandemic And I was like, yep, she's right when they were saying that a reason not to wear masks is because if you touch your mask, then you'll get it on your hands, and then you'll touch your face. And Zainab's like, "Well, if it's on your mask, that means that your mask works, because otherwise, it's in your freaking mouth or nose." Um, so it was like it became really crystal clear. In um, even though it was so obvious to her and that many of the CDC and the WHO and all the big organizations were so freaking slow. And a lot of times you still have to struggle with someone to help for them to understand that this is an airborne disease. And yet she didn't turn against the whole establishment. She said, this is really hard. I think you guys really fuck this up, but on these other things, like you're right. Um, and that's because she did it from a place of respect for the process, not a place of, looking to grow an audience or provoke people online for retweets and likes and that's ultimately what this is about.
0: I think you're spot on. I mean that's it is are you trying to change things for the better? And if you do that, you tend to do good work in the traditional you know at least in the traditional field in some way there's always an avenue in um, Or are you doing it for the external validation of likes, retweets, you know popularity, et cetera? And of course, we're humans. We can do it for both. But generally, what I think the internet does and where people lose their mind and why they always end up in diet is because that like external validation starts to supersede everything else and diet provides a cheap, easy way to get a bunch of that for yourself. And then
1: maybe the last um, related tangent, Steve, is that think it's really important for elite institutions to recognize that they have a really important responsibility, which is not to become so closed off and quote unquote elitist, because what ends up happening is then you get the far extreme elsewhere. So if trying to host a podcast for a major company or trying to write for a major magazine or newspaper becomes so arduous and you're just getting big-timed and treated like you're small by these people that have perceived status and power, well, then what are you going to do? You're going to freaking load up your own medium and blast out stuff bashing the elites. And if other people have had the same experience, they're going to agree with you. And suddenly you get, um, you know, America first news. And I'm not saying that's the only reason this is happening, but I do think that um, my own experience with a lot of elite institutions is that most people are trying to do good work, but there is a real sense of like, we're better than you in, in big timing. I call it big timing. So the equivalent of big timing for us is like you pitch someone that you've done good work for before an essay and they just don't respond to you or they respond to you and then they start ghosting you. And that's just unprofessional. And no one is so busy that they can't respond to an email with someone that they've worked with in the past. So I think that it's hard to forgive that, but if that continues to happen to more and more people and like there's this high status perception of people at elite institutions, well then you're going to get the, the blowback and the pushback. Um, Absolutely. And you're going to, and you're going to like create these problems. So I think the biggest blind spot for elite institutions is that they can be wrong. And I think it's especially hard in in scientific fields because science is now at a part where if science says like we might be wrong, there's a whole field of charlatans that are going to jump on that and be like, see, there's doubt, there's doubt. Science is wrong. Science is wrong. But if science says that we're unequivocally right and then it turns out that they were wrong, then that's not good either. So I think that like that's where things
0: are really, really, really challenging right now. Absolutely, people are taking advantage of the fact that good science often isn't certain, (laughs) which is leading to a lot of bad science or at least bad scientific claims. Right, because it forces you to like overstate your claims, um, or allow people to kind of like wiggle in there, charlatans to wiggle in there, and be like, "Look, there's doubt." And um, I'm not sure how we solved that problem. To me, it's a little bit of like an education problem on understanding how to understand science and what the process is like. And I think as a society, we do a very poor job of that. And
1: nuance, you know, you can't explain uh, relative risk reduction in a 180-character tweet, period. Um So uh, that's what we're trying to do on this podcast, and that's why we believe in longer form information, whether it's our newsletter, this podcast, or of course our books. Um, So we appreciate you all coming along for the ride. Uh, If you enjoy the show, please share it with your friends, your family, your colleagues. We are always trying to reach more people as we break down complicated topics related to health, well-being, and sustainable excellence. And um, hopefully leave you all with a mix of understanding and potential for action. So with that, we will see you next week. And until then, uh, work hard and rest harder.